Hello everyone and welcome to the Society of Construction Law podcast. We're here recording at the Society of Construction Law conference on the Gold Coast. It's been a fantastic conference and we're going to have a, an interview between Alyssa Taylor from Meyer Vandenberg Lawyers in Canberra and from Ian Bailey, a barrister in Sydney. We're going to talk about a subject that Ian is incredibly passionate about, the difficulties we face with respect to private certification and consequent non-compliant issues you can have with multi-storey buildings. Just how big is this problem? How widespread is this problem? And how do you tackle a problem that's this big, that's got this many participants that may need political change? I'll hand it over to uh, Alyssa and uh, Ian to, to have a chat. To understand the problem, we should go back to the beginning and where the problem arose. Prior to the early 1990s, there were a number of cases where local government authorities were found liable for failing to inspect and issuing compliance certificates and completion of buildings. And the, the local government associations and local government in generally got sick and tired of being the last man standing or the last uninsured party standing and they persuaded the government to introduce uh, some legislation and in the early 1990s there was a a document called the Building Bill, the Uniform Building Bill, and it included a number of reforms theoretically. One of them was primarily to allow for private certification by building practitioners who were approved under some sort of scheme. The other thing that's a big problem is they also introduced to satisfy the professional indemnity insurers, they introduced a scheme of proportionate liability, which now has its ramifications in multi-party proceedings, and uh, the the process has deteriorated very seriously in primarily in multi-storey apartment buildings, where we have um, it's more a combination of fire and waterproofing problems. And they are just in really quite serious problems, particularly, if I could put it this way, at the third and fourth level of tiers of uh, developers. I don't think Dent Lend Lease or Mervac would have these problems. And in fact, we know that some of the major contra- contractors, recognising the fact that they don't have proper training, are actually setting up training camps in big buildings so that they can have their project managers learn about how to do waterproofing properly and these sorts of things. But the big issue is how do we fix it? That's the big question. Yeah, and I think that um, you're right in saying that the the bigger builders and the bigger developers don't tend to have the problem because they have more of a reputation Mm. at stake and they they really want to make sure that their name is... um, is held in good standing going forward, and also they've got the resources. Yeah, and I, what, by contrast, if you look at what I rather crudely describe as the um, Mahaja or the typical really bad developer's approach, they will have a development consent, they'll have a, an architect designed to make some pretty drawings, they will then uh, sign a design and construct contract with a contractor who will be pretty heavily screwed, or priced right down to the bottom of the market. They will appoint a private certifier appointed by the developer who will certify satisfactory completion based on all of the paper, which is nonsense, and the 
the usual scenario is that the developing developer corporation has a fight with the contractor towards the end and um, doesn't pay the last couple of million, takes over the contract, completes the work whilst the litigation is going on with the contractor, and then the, the certifier issues an occupation certificate, startup plans registered, company developer goes into liquidation, and the owners of the units have no relief against anybody. That's, there's no insurance for anything above eight storeys, and um, there's just no relief. And the most recent example of this is in the North Shore Times recently, where the Karingai Council had directed the owners corporation of a home unit in uh, up in the North Shore, Warrawee, um, to actually give them 18 months to take off all of the aluminium cladding from the outside of their building. And it's going to cost them hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. But that's the sort of thing that I'm focused on. Yeah, and owners' corporations really are getting squeezed in the middle of the sandwich because they've got obligations down to the unit owners to maintain the premises and, and waterproofing can be a real problem because if there's a waterproofing defect then the water will have some ingress into the premises and then the unit owners might have a claim against the owners' corporation. For not some, maintaining. For not, maintain, not maintaining the premises. Yeah, it's a, I think that, that with the really bad developers though, um, and I can give you one example that we now understand that if the developer sells only a proportion of the um, units, they maintain ownership and they can maintain can control, control of the body Absolutely. corporate. We've what? actually run a case in the ACT recently um, behind the scenes where an owners corporation um, had that exact same problem. The developer owned 53% and was preventing them from doing certain things. Um, and we actually managed to get a decision about um, oppression of minority um, ah, unit owners right. in, in relation to that situation. But it's, it's really tough for them. Well, it, when you've got to go to that sort of lengths to try and get a legal remedy, mm. it's quite hideous. It's amazing, yeah. 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 Um, I've heard of circumstances, and I won't defame them by putting their name on the podcast, but a well-known developer who is not known for quality the, they will retain up to 30% of the units. They will sell 25% and a management company will take um, the body corporate votes from the foreign owners and nothing will ever mm. change. And what I heard about is that some students, foreign students were tenants in this place. The water from the bathroom in the unit next door flowed under the wall and the students to be able to live in it put pallets down and <laughs> and, and then pass... Uh, uh, Living on piers in their own yeah, apartment. <laughs> MDF on top of it and then put the carpet back on top and then just put heaters under to try oh, and wow. dry it out. Now, there's no body corporate that's got any interest in fixing it and that they're only tenants and mm. they're paying nearly nothing. Um, and it's really quite scary. The issue, I think, has been really highlighted because of the tragedies in London, which Matthew, you spoke passionately about. It was wonderful it's a to fantastic hear. fantastic speech. It's not yeah, it was, a presentation. It was wonderful. <clears throat> and, uh, well, no, that's what we expect. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the big issue now, I think, is that we've got to get a um, unified approach across the country. Now, the Senate inquiry is about to conclude and will probably make recommendations the big problem that I face in New South Wales is that the 
government in New South Wales re- received uh, a report from Michael Lambert in 2013, which had a huge series of recommendations primarily to set up a building regulation advisory council of industry representatives, and that hasn't even been done. Mm. And what one of the primary objectives was to try and bring building regulation, take it out of planning, take it out of fair trading, actually call it not necessarily a new department of building, but a building regulation agency that dealt with discipline, dealt with regulations, enforcing and taking over penalty um, actions. But the government has not accepted or adopted those recommendations. They've decided to adopt 270 out of 720, and it's just not getting anywhere. And um, so I'm pleased that Sockler's decided to take on this battle nationally because it is a national battle. It does make you really sad when you think about what Federation has done for the legislation and regulation in this country. Yeah, it it makes it very difficult for anyone who's in the industry to Mm. know what they need to do and and how to do it. Mm. Um, And it makes it difficult for decisions to get made. Yeah, and for people in industry to move from one state to another when security of payments are a big enough problem, but why, why do we have to have different Entirely different regimes, yeah. yeah. It's a huge problem for my clients in the ACT because they all work in cross-jurisdictional, uh, yeah. in a cross-jurisdictional way. Yeah. And they have to learn two sets of laws. And Matthew gave a great example this morning of how big those laws actually are when he compared the volumes, the pieces of paper in, was it the Victorian legislation? Yeah, the, the, the um, building regulation. said that it would be higher than the, the Eureka Tower in That's in stacked vertically yeah. with the pages that's extraordinary yeah yeah but uh, well i think the good thing is that we at least have a number of solutions that we are pushing one is that i've indicated to the state government new south wales it is the developers who make the money in strata corporation buildings they should have a statutory obligation to ensure compliance now however they do that by employing architects and engineers and one of the things that could be simply said is the principal things such as fire, waterproofing, um, and major elements in the structure should be certified by the designer, being compliant design, and also certified on completion. And that's a sensible way of incorporating the existing process. And it means that the developer's just got to pay for getting it done properly. Mm. And that's one way. And the other was the very interesting thing that um, Bruce Morrow spoke about, the uh, decennial system that applies in, in in Europe and that's something that we certainly at Sockler can consider whether that's some another recommendation we make. Yeah, I was fascinated by that part of his um, yeah. talk this morning, particularly his um, estimation of how much it actually cost and the percentage he gave, I think, one was 1.5% one yeah. of construction costs, which um, I'd always thought the rationale for not sort of not insuring against defects was that it would be a prohibitively high cost. Yeah, what they, they've found is that by a combination of processes, one is the legislated requirement for residential buildings to have the decennial insurance. That is, you've got an insurance policy that lasts for 10 years. Mm. The other is that... And this, they, is, this is different to the homeowner's oh warranty yes, because yes. it's not just a safety net for but insolvency, it's actually a, it's an a, insurance policy against defects, that's right? That's right, for 10 years. Mm. And the, um, because the 
insurers have a real interest in not paying out. The insurers are the ones who enforce compliance. They carry out inspections. They have training programs to make sure the industry understands what's required. And it simply works. They don't have in Paris or in Germany and Belgium and other countries where they've adopted this system, they don't have the problem. So maybe that's something we'll be able to look at yeah. in Soklov when we... I found that a very interesting part of this yeah, morning's wasn't discussion. Yeah, it was very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I wondered where he was going, uh, but eventually he got to this decennial thing. Now, let me tell you that, that this was quite um, interesting that uh, Philip Britton, Professor Britton from King's College London, um, he teaches this subject on building regulation in, in domestic situations around the world at Melbourne University. And I was in London uh, introducing introduced to a set of chambers in London and he said oh well, you must come along to this conference and uh, I want you to sit down and listen to it all and at the end of the day I want you to just bring it all together. <laughs> it was quite remarkable to find, hear how the decennial system works in, uh, in um, Europe but also the system that they have in England it's, they only have about 26% of defects of any significance in residential building there's a big problem currently, though, with developers who are selling defective buildings and financing the sale, and the poor purchasers have very little remedies. And it's, if you read the Times, there's quite a bit of news about that. But it's not, they don't have the problems like we have. Mm. So I think the statistic this morning was that 80% of our buildings are being handed over in a defective state. Absolutely. They're the statistics that came from... Michael Lambert's report, 86% mm -hmm. of home unit buildings, high-rise, have defects. 29% of them have major defects in fire and waterproofing. Wow. Yeah. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. <laughs> you wouldn't want to buy a unit in New South Wales. That's no. What, um, and that's the campaign we've been running, is mm. to say to the government, Lambert or lose you adopt the Lambert report or New South Wales loses. Yeah, and, and that really goes against housing affordability as well because if people are not, they don't have confidence in buying apartments, they're forced into a different product, yeah. but they don't have the affordability to buy that product. And, and it, what we suffer is the potential that if foreign owners are renting out units which they don't wish or care to fix, we're going to end up with acres and acres of slums. Um, it's pretty sad. Um, I'd Green Park is a part of Sydney that I would seriously recommend nobody go anywhere near. But there was a program on ABC uh, Radio National on Big Issue looking at the waterproofing problems at Breakfast Point, the units at Breakfast Point. Again, the same issue about um, the developers disappearing, phoenixing, all of these other issues. Mm -hmm. So it's a phenomenally complex problem, but it has to be addressed nationally. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. Um, you mentioned fire, fire rating a minute ago, mm. and one of the things we should probably talk about is the Grenfell Tower yes. disaster yes. Um, and uh, the implications for what's going on in Australia. I mean, everyone's having inquiries now into the products that are out there, mm. but my view is that this is maybe a sleeping dog, um, and Mike, I can talk from personal experience of having lived and worked in the ACT where we've just gone through the Mr Fluffy Asbestos, um, uh, whatever you want to call that. <laughs> debacle, really. Yeah, it's cost the federal government a billion dollars to fund ACT government to demolish these houses and pull this, this product out. Um, that's not a, a building product that was put in at the stage of building, but mm. I can see a similar thing happening with defective products 
that have been used for years and years and are now just coming to light as being um, unsafe. Yes. It's, it, it, um, Karen Stiles, who anybody who reads the Sydney Morning Herald or listens to the Senate reports on the Senate inquiry, she's the head of the Owners Corporation group and she's absolutely amazing woman and very good spokesman to ha- person to have in our group. And um, she has a block of units that cost $8 million to build and it's going to cost $3.6 million for the owners to fix it. That's amazing. You've got to actually have a loose quarter of a million for a one-bedroom unit on top of what you paid for it. And the problem is quite large. Yeah, and then once those things come to light, the unit is unsellable. That's so right. you're stuck with an investment that not only lost you money, but actually is costing you a lot more money because yeah. you're required to go and fund these things. And that's why I think if only the government could understand this is an economic issue, apart from being public policy, it's an economic question. Mm. Um, and we're not going to solve the unaffordable affordable housing issue by just building slums no. and letting people live in decrepit buildings, but it's a very interesting and complex problem. And it's really good that Sockler's taking it on. So for the rest of the day, Ian, what are you really looking forward to seeing as part the, of the conference program? The Brooking Prize. Um, it's always a highlight. <laughs> it is extro- extremely... And I was talking to his, his, his honour last night and I'd said to him that I hope you realise that you may not be around forever but your name will be attached to what's become an internationally recognised student paper and when you look at the candidates that we had for the Brooking Prize, they came from all over the world. There were people, you know, and people are lining up to want to get into the, the competition. It's quite phenomenal. Matthew's done a brilliant job, but it's nice that what will happen is that the students will be given a, the winners will be given a chance to speak briefly about their papers, and receive their prizes from. He's on it. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. And, you know, as a past recipient of the Student Booking Prize, I oh, have to right, say that the calibre of the papers that go in are just outstanding. Absolutely. <laughs> I remember the, your paper. But <laughs> what have you, you, you particularly enjoyed so far? Oh, I, I really enjoyed the futurist um, discussions this morning about the Hyperloop and also about the, um, the self-driving vehicles. Um, Disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> A car that doesn't make any noise is not... It should not be allowed to be anywhere near the streets. Anyway, I'm sorry, that's a personal view. But I I agree with you. I think that was... And the committee has done a fantastic job of looking forward in so many different respects. I mean, um, uh, Bruce Morrow's paper, although he took a long time to get to his solution, was pointing out that we really do have to do something. He was good. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Now I'm looking forward to something else this afternoon apart from (laughs) Brookings. Well, I'm really looking forward to... I mean, the the future is really um, a big focus of this year's conference and I'm really looking forward to seeing some of the the talks about um, machines, artificial intelligence and um, the disruptive client. Uh, society of Constructions Laws running um, some really interesting debates with the Young Constructor Committee around the country at the moment yeah. about apps and whether apps can fix the world. You're <laughs> so, right. uh, I think it, I think there's a really interesting issue, and I'm looking forward to that session this afternoon. Yeah, and the rise of the machines because Jenny Baker and Alicia, just another mm-hmm. different way of spelling a similar name. <laughs> She's got it wrong. Um, but you know, <laughs> but they're, they're, I'm looking forward to that, and they're just oh. It's, it's, 
it's, it's wonderful. I've had a little bit of dealing with them at Pinsent Masons and uh, that, I'm looking forward to that. The disruptive client might be interesting. Yeah, I, that's probably the, my, my top one for this afternoon. I'm really interested to see that. I had a client a few years ago who, um, he was a Boston, um, a Jewish man, who was a property developer and he had this very thick accent and he said, Mr Bailey, I want blood. I want blood. <laughs> and I said, I won't say his name, but I said, look, you just give me money, I'll give you blood. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. He wasn't really a disruptive client, but we settled the case very successfully for him eventually. Hopefully no blood was actually spilled no, in no, the no, making no. of he, that case. Yeah, no, no. A lot of time was wasted, that was all. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ian. It's been yeah. lovely chatting to it's you today. And I'm looking forward to working with you on one of some of the subcommittees that we're Excellent. expanding. Yes, and we'll on. fix all of the world's problems, oh, won't we? Well. <laughs>